All right, all right, all right. It's the Foghorn, and that means it's time for the Cabot Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. In conjunction with the Navy League Sea, Air, and Space Global Maritime Exposition, we present this special edition of the Cavus Ships Podcast, focusing on a single defense supplier. Our show coverage of Sea, Air, and Space is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries. And today we're featuring General Atomics. And with us is Doug Hardison. He's with the company's Aeronautical Systems Division, where he's the Sector Vice President for Strategic Development. He's also a retired Marine Colonel attack helicopter pilot with combat experience commanding unmanned aircraft systems. Among other duties while on active duty, he commanded Marine Aircraft 42 of the 4th Marine Aircraft Wing. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Uh, well, thank you for hosting me today. I appreciate it. All right. We're, we're glad to have you here. So unmanned aviation gets a lot of attention, but I think that the unmanned buzzword is, uh, is, is something folks aren't always quite clear about when it comes to the vast variety of aircraft, from handheld gizmos to attack types to very large, high-flying, long-range surveillance systems. Where is General Atomics concentrating its unmanned aviation efforts? Well, Chris, we, uh, General Atomics, we, we spend uh, our core competency is really uh, developing air, large aircraft, where they would be categorized as Group Five unmanned aircraft systems, which are, you know, where our aircraft are you know, 10,000 pounds plus. So they're very large airplanes. Uh, they have uh, uh, endurance times, uh, you know, up up to 40 hours. So I mean, these are these are larger aircraft, and uh, they 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 give the warfighter quite an advantage because because of the long endurance and their ability, to, you know, to stay over top of, you know, persistently over top of uh, uh, target areas. Uh, they really they do provide a game-changing capability for the warfighter. So, so I know you're you're always um, trying to come up with new ideas, meet meet existing requirements, anticipate new requirements. Um, I, the last time I talked to you all in person, uh, people were talking to us about the M- MQ-9B Bravo Sky Guardian, which is also known as Sea Guardian if you're talking about naval and maritime use. What is the Sky Guardian? So, well, the Sky Guardian is. Is actually it's a derivative of our MQ-9A or MQ-9 series aircraft. So we actually our company the started uh, the Reaper is actually the MQ-9 Alpha uh, Reaper, right. which is an Air Force product. Um, but uh, I mean our lineage actually starts back way before then. So we started with the MQ-1 Bravo, which is the the Predator that most people are familiar with. That was the smaller version that started off in the mid 90s. So our company is uh, we're actually celebrating our 30th year this year. Uh, we, we're, we're very much a young company in a sense, uh, and we're you know right in the middle of the robotics revolution. So it's a very exciting time, time and place to be uh, with General Atomics. I've, I've really I've enjoyed it. I've been with them for for nine years, and I've, I've enjoyed every moment of it. It's it's a fascinating place to work. Um, but the, the so the MQ9 series began in 2001, uh, just before 9/11. We built that airplane uh, uh, to uh, some basic Air Force specifications. And uh, it was very timely, obviously, as we entered in, you know, full uh, went into the global war on terror, became a, almost a premier weapon system. Um, starting around eight years ago, uh, we 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 had that airplane, and we we there were two things that kind of drove us to shifting from the MQ-9 Alpha to the MQ-9 Bravo, which we which the the UK is the, our our uh, flagship. Um, uh, um, country for that particular platform. So that's who we're selling it to first. But uh, there were two forcing functions that, that essentially kind of drove us towards building something like the MQ-9B. 
Um, the first factor was really a demand signal from many of our customers in Europe and Asia that needed an airplane that can opt that could be certified for operations in non-segregated airspace. And by that, I mean airspace that uh, typically were manned aircraft are flying, um, you know, airways, that type of thing. And, and that's really to kind of broaden the ability to operate alongside those manned aircraft in more traditional uh, surveillance roles, uh, much like what we see like with uh, Rivet Joint or P-8, those type of things. And today's MQ-9 Alpha that the Air Force operates is more, uh, it's a point design um, and it's, it, op it operates in, in segregated airspace where, where we own that airspace. Well, most of the world does, doesn't operate that way. And so that's, that, that was the first forcing function. The second, the second one was actually, to, you know, it, it, about the same time we were recognizing a shift uh, um, from the global war on terror to what, you know, ultimately uh, Jim Mattis defined it, with the new national defense strategy back in 16, 17 timeframe as a, a shift to a peer competition or near peer competition. You, you can kind of, I, I kind of say peer competition because depending upon what, what aspects of technology we're talking about, both the, the Chinese and even the Russians uh, kind of match us in, some, in, in many areas. Um, but with that, we, we started to focus on that same, air, that same platform or system, then able to uh, have a more maritime role. So we actually started in 2016 developing ASW capabilities so that we'd have a, an MQ-9 or an unmanned airplane that can operate end-to-end -end for uh, um, um, anti-submarine warfare. Not just maritime surveillance, which we've been doing for a number of years with the DHS, but but really going full in for uh, doing maritime surveillance that's akin to what uh, the P-8 does or even the EP-3 for some of the SIGINT stuff that we're working on. So we started that in 16 and uh, and actually culminated uh, um, with a uh, a demonstrate a paid demonstration by the Navy to see our platform perform that ASW role back in April of last year, uh, where we successfully tracked a couple of uh, uh, submarines, I'll just say, uh, off the coast of California, and um, and really really got uh, everybody's attention. And now we're going to be participating again, funded by the U.S. Navy uh, this summer, July and August, during RIMPAC 2022 out in Hawaii. So those that that was the genesis of the MQ-9B. So does that kind of answer that first part of your question? Sure. So you have a you have a prototype, right? And and that's what's you've been testing, and you're flying that prototype well, we actually, in, in RIMPAC. Right. So we actually have an MQ, it's a productionized MQ-9B. So this is a, a United Kingdom program of record. And uh, this is a, uh, so this is, um, it's UK program of record, not US government, but it's a program of record. So we're actually, we're, we're demonstrating with the US Navy that production aircraft uh, so that they can assess and, and uh, get a sense of, of how this aircraft would support uh, maritime operations and, and uh, uh, you know, how it would work in, in, in uh, conjunction with P-8s and, and uh, Navy ships and that type of thing. That's what we'll be doing out during REMPAC. And uh, we, we give it, we've already done a little bit of that during integrated battle problem back in April, but I think REMPAC's really going to be a, a, much, a, a much larger and more uh, right. rigorous examination of the airplane. So the Rim of the Pacific, this is the, this is the major world's largest naval exercise that goes on every two years. Uh, going on this summer uh, near Hawaii. Uh, your your UK customer is that is that the Navy or the Army? I'm sorry, the Air Force. It's the it's actually the RAF. Yeah, so it's the, it's, RAF. It's the uh, UK. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but but they also they have a lot. They have as much interest in uh, now. We started off with it's called the Sky Guardian program with the with the United Kingdom, uh, which is ba basically the CMK9B, 
and SeaGuardian is a derivative of that same program, but essentially uh, it, it are some add-on maritime kits like the uh, provision for maritime radar, uh, there's provisions for um, sonobuoy dispense pods, uh, uh, up to four, so we can dispense up to 40 sonobuoys if we wanted to. Uh, there's there's an, a uh, sonobuoy monitoring control system that allows us to do split uh, acoustic processing. So we're able to process all the acoustic data just like a P8 would. And uh, we again, we, we successfully demonstrated that uh, last year with the, with the U.S. Navy to, I mean, to great success. And, um, and it's a novel way to do that. We're working with a, a Canadian company, actually, GD Canada, who has that processor, and it's extremely uh, capable uh, uh, technology, and so we're very excited about it. Doug, um, switching gears just a little bit, um, just like we saw in the war on terror, um, the the latest war that the um, you, you know the United States citizens and really citizens of the world are focused on is the conflict in Ukraine, um, and the Bayraktar unmanned aircraft system has kind of become a household name uh, as it's mentioned, you know, at least three or four times a week. Um, what are you guys learning as you see attack footage and as you maybe get debriefs from folks that are familiar uh, with the tactics and procedures being used in, uh, by the uh, Ukrainians? What, what are you learning that helps you either, um, you know, develop new systems or um, better sell your product uh, to the United States and, and, and allied services? Uh, what, you, you know, are there any early lessons learned? Yeah, actually, it's a great question, and, and uh, I'm having, a, you know, I, I work closely with the Navy and the Marine Corps, other agencies. We, we have a, we have a lot of ongoing discussions just about this. So, um, I think the first uh, the first lesson I think is, is the idea that everybody, uh, Air Force included, thought that you know day one uh, that UAVs in a in a conflict would not play as large a role as they actually have. Um, so uh, that's not to say that uh, UAVs are not getting, you know, shot down just just like uh, other manned airplanes, but that they they're a little bit more challenging to uh, to uh, take off the battlefield than a lot of a, a lot of people thought. Um, so I would say that uh, that's maybe one of the I mean that that's like the, one of the first things. I, uh, where the so what we're watching we are watching this very closely. So. The Ukrainians are doing some very interesting things with their TB2. That's a Turkish product. It's a small UAV. It's about the size of our old Predator A, uh, our old uh, MQ1, uh, MQ1s that we used to fly. The um, what it's telling us is that um, um, the idea that you could op if you can operate UAVs from sh smaller airfields. Uh, it was short, basically shorter runways, more expeditionary. That, that that's a very big plus. Makes it very challenging. And much like what the Marine Corps is concerned about with enforced design about base signatures, that's really how the threat's going to target you. They're, going after an airplane is, is is doable, but you know it takes a lot of effort and work to to get after you know, to take a airplane down. But taking out a base is like that's that's job one. Uh, and we everybody recognizes that. I mean anybody that has any military experience understands that that's kind of the that, that's the first thing you do, much like what the Russians did uh, the first uh, six hours of the fight, you know, when in February, they took out every major Ukrainian air base, the, the large ones. Uh, but then getting after the smaller ones has been more challenging. I think that that's point one. I think point two is that where we see the Ukrainians are really missing the opportunities with the networking and the ability to use that UAV, and they may be, I don't have all the details, 
in a, it, not just as a uh, ISR device, but also as a, uh, a way to enable your network and uh, collect information, you know, uh, electronic warfare. And so that's, that's where we're spending a lot of time, both with the Navy and the Marine Corps and Air Force Two, working on programs where we can, we can collect at the same level of uh, technology as Rivetoin today. So we're using, we, we're, we have several pro ongoing programs where we're, we're working to bring that kind of technology on a very, but to be honest, an MQ-9 is a very simple platform, but, but that's why we have such great uh, availability. That's, you know, 90% plus of uh, aircraft availability. And, um, you know, and that's what's so critical. So the idea here is that, you know, we're flying very sophisticated technology, surveillance technology, kind of moving away from, uh, you know, the EOIR world that you're very familiar with, the global war on terror, and moving more towards uh, EW and SIGINT. So that would be the second case, the second kind of observation. And the third observation is, so uh, General Thomas, we, we kind of, we don't look at a, a single platform, but we look at different arrays or different uh, ways to, uh, uh, to, to shape the battlefield with different sizes of airplanes. So we have different concepts for air-launched UAS, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles from other UADs. And so we're, we're looking at how do we extend our ability to operate in more denied space with airplanes that are smaller, harder to find, but also less expensive to pull that information out or it, and have also capabilities for kinetic, uh, kinetic operations as well, very well forward into a, uh, a, let's say a more um, uh, deadly environment uh, where one, we're not risking any people at all, but we're also, we're not really, we're turning that, that cost curve on its head and, you know, basically providing an asymmetric response to the threat. We're not throwing, you know, super expensive capabilities downrange as much as very inexpensive cap capabilities that have, uh, you know, good and solid critical technologies that are able to do the job for us. So maybe th those would be the top three things I think that, that one is a company we've observed and also my discussions with folks in the military. So, I mean, you're a, you're a naval aviator, um, you, you know, in, in a previous life, you um, flew or commanded both manned and unmanned uh, aircraft. Um, is this the moment that um, unmanned aircraft really takes off? I mean, it, you know, it, it's sort of, depending on the service, it, it's kind of floundered a little bit. Um, largely, I think, because of cultural reasons, is this when um, capability kind of overcomes some of those uh, cultural barriers, in, in your opinion? I love flying Cobras. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. I mean, flying a Cobra is a lot more fun than flying a UAV. Sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's much more exciting. Uh, that said, I probably did a lot more damage to the threat as a UAV commander in, in, you know, in my short time there than I ever did as a flying a Cobra. Now, it, and just because you have that bird's eye view of what's going on and your ability to basically focus and concentrate fires is, I mean, it's unimaginable. And to your point, I would say that I don't know if it'll be a wake up call. I kind of look at this in phases or generations. The idea that, you know, pre 9-11, we've been toying with the idea, if you look at the literature way back in the day about, you know, UAVs and, and the impact that they would have. And I think there was maybe they were oversold um, uh, to a certain degree. And then I would say, you know, in the next two decades, uh, really 15 years between 9-11 and, you know, say the mid-2015-16 uh, was really the, was the height of the global war on terror. We're now UAVs, both Army, Air Force, not so much Navy and Marine Corps, to be honest with you, but, but at least those two services, it became kind of a, 
um, very common and normalized. And you could see the impact. I mean, can you imagine if if the Air Force had decided to fly uh, F-16s like they were operating MQ-9s? It would have, it, it would have just broke the bank. It would have killed our whole fourth fleet, our, our fourth gen fleet completely. Uh, you could argue that the Navy and Marine Corps uh, killed the F-18 fleet by trying to fly non-traditional ISR missions with them for so many years. Right. So, I mean, the Air Force used that capability to great, I mean, uh, to made a great use of it. I think we're in this next phase where, um, where we're, we are going to see the shifts that you're talking about. Um, whether that's wholesale or not, I can't, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to say till kind of when you're looking back. Um, but I can say that we are, uh, we're so mature now, at least, at least from General Thomas and, the, and a lot of the other vendors are very mature with, with, with the systems, how they operate. Um, I, I would say we have an advantage because we're, we're trying to think about the problem, not so much from the, uh, you know, how do, how do you get a UAV downtown and, you know, through, through all the different, you know, IADs and that type of stuff. We're trying to just, you know, solve what, what people would think are simple problems are extremely complex and challenging. The idea of certifying an airplane that can operate in manned airspace, you, you ha- it, it's considerably difficult to create an airplane that goes through all that type, uh, that, that airworthiness certification processes and the artifacts and all those things necessary to make that happen. And uh, so I would say that, uh, that that's, that's, you know, when we solve that problem, we're going to, I mean, I think that you're going to see a big shift between, let's say now and uh, in the, in the mid thirties, all the way into the mid thirties. So let's flip it. Um, what is General Atomics doing in the counter UAV world, right? So you guys have become experts at sort of solving and thinking about all of those problems. H- how about um, to counter uh, the bad guys that would use UAVs uh, against us the way we would seek to use them against uh, our, our uh, competition? So, uh, and I never give direct answers, just like any good business development guy. I would say uh, there's a couple uh, a couple approaches. One is if you look at, so you, if you examine the systems for most UAVs, the, you know, there's, there's different places that you can, you know, you can get inside a UAV. When I say inside, where you start breaking the command, the C2 link and that type of thing. So we are, we have programs like that and other things that, you know, to, like that, that allow us to, let, let's say, counter the threat. Um, and there's, uh, and there's other capabilities out there as well that we explore, but uh, probably not, not right for this form. Um, the uh, and then on the on the flip side of that is we're always assessing and always working through and trying to get ahead of even what the threat might think about you know how how could they keep us out what could they do to counter us so we're always working through you know multiple ways to you know to uh, command our airplanes and then and then we are we are obviously doing a lot of work on autonomy where we don't need, you know, don't really need C2 links if we don't need them, that type of thing. So we're working through different capabilities like that that are different levels of maturity. So, um, and again, it's, it's, you know, one of the reasons I stick around this company because there's just, there's so many different things that are ongoing. Uh, and I don't have two days in a row that are the same. Well, th- thank you for indulging me. I-, I feel like that reporter on the Saturday Night Live skit where I ask you, you know, where are your troops and can I count them, right? You know, I'm asking <laughs> the UAV guy, uh, how do you down UAV? So uh, I appreciate you, you know, not calling me a dummy or insulting us on, on our own. No, mind. no, I mean, it's, <laughs> but, but I mean, there's, there's there's nothing there that, I mean, that, 
anybody, I mean, if you've got, if you've ever flown a, a UAV in your backyard near a, near a cell phone tower, I mean, there, there's lots of different, you know, as a, as a UAV commander out in the, arrived in two tours with BMU-2 in uh, just outside of Baghdad uh, near Fallujah. And uh, we, as it turns out, the United States is probably the biggest, uh, you know, counter UAV force out there because it, they've got so many different, you know, microwave stations and things, that, you know, that are radiating that, uh, you know, on any given day, I was, you know, I was, I was getting jammed, but it was primarily it was from us, you know, from the United States. So you, you, you can figure all that stuff out pretty quickly. And again, besides that, there's, there's other, you know, neat tricks out there that are available, things that, you know, that, that uh, you know, I'm sure the government's exploring. Well, sir, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, folks, our guest has been Doug Hardison, Vice President of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Thanks for being on the podcast, Doug. Thank you, guys. I appreciate being on. All right. Our show coverage of Sea Air Space is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Yeah.